Well, good morning, everybody. For those of you listening overseas, it's Mother's Day in South Africa. And seeing as it is Mother's Day, I thought it might be a good idea to sit back and listen to a story. It's a story that we've looked at before as a congregation, but one which I think is very meaningful in the situation in which we find ourselves at present. You can read the story for yourself in the book of Ruth, but do keep your Bibles open because I'll be referring to some of the verses as we go along. Are you all sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. The book of Ruth is named after one of the main characters in the story, Ruth, but in fact the book begins by telling us the story of a lady called Naomi. And the first part of the book tells the story of how Naomi's life falls apart. Our story begins in the days when the judges ruled, which wasn't a particularly nice time in the history of Israel. If you read through the book of Judges, you will read that this was a time when Israel had no king, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes, and what was right in their own eyes was not particularly right at all. But the book of Ruth doesn't deal with the entire nation of Israel. Rather, it focuses in on just one particular family in the nation. In verse 2, we're introduced to the husband, Elimelech, whose name means, My God is King. Elimelech's wife is this lady called Naomi, which means the lovely one. And they have two sons, Marlon and Kilion, and they live in the town of Bethlehem, a town that is familiar to us from the New Testament. And this little family are caught up in a crisis situation. Not only are they living in this terrible time of the judges, but we're told in verse 1 that there is a famine in the land. It's actually quite ironic. Bethlehem means house of bread, but at the moment it certainly isn't living up to its name. And Elimelech looks across the Jordan Valley and sees the land of Moab, and he knows that there is food there, and so he decides to take his family and go and seek work and food in Moab. Now that couldn't have been an easy decision to make. You see, Moab wasn't just another country, it was one of the traditional enemies of Israel. And so this little family must have been fairly reticent about going there. There would have been all sorts of stresses and difficulties in moving to another country. It wasn't a particularly safe thing to do. This family would have been foreigners in a foreign country. The Moabites didn't worship the same God, and this family would no longer be protected by Israelite laws. This little family would have gone through a major upheaval, a little bit like the upheaval we're experiencing in our own lives at the moment. They must have been really disorientated and frightened. They faced the possibility of prejudice and ostracism. There was a very real risk in going to Moab. But what choice did they have really? And so this is the first stage in Naomi's life beginning to fall apart. The family have to leave their home and live in a foreign nation. But that was quickly followed by the next stage in Naomi's life falling apart. The family have only been in Moab a short while when Elimelech dies. The writer just mentions the event in a very short sentence in verse 3, 
But those of you who've lost a husband or a wife or a close relative will know how terrible that event would have been both for Naomi and her two sons. The chief breadwinner of the family has died. Naomi is now left alone with her two sons in a foreign country. So far, Elimelech is not living up to his name. At the moment, it certainly doesn't look like God is king. Well, the family stay in Moab for ten years, and during that time, both Marlon and Kilion each find a good-looking Moabite woman to marry. I mean, who else is there to marry in Moab? But again, this must have been another stage in Naomi's life falling apart. Moabites. Naomi knew all about Moabites. There's a very unpleasant story in Genesis chapter 19 that tells how the Moabites came into the world. Abraham's nephew Lot has two daughters, and they get him drunk one evening and sleep with him, and that is the origin of the nation of Moab. Not a particularly pleasant beginning for the nation, and in fact the rest of Moab's history wasn't very pleasant either. Naomi would have remembered the last time Israelite men got involved with Moabite women. In Numbers chapter 25, while the Israelites are still in the desert, we read how the Israelite men get involved in sexual immorality with the Moabite women and end up worshipping their gods. This was not what Naomi was hoping for, for her two boys. She had hoped that they would marry nice Israelite girls. She couldn't have been very happy about their choice. At least there is now the possibility that this little family will be able to continue but then tragedy strikes yet again, because both Marlon and Kilion die, and neither of them have any children. This is in fact one of the biggest tragedies that could ever befall an Israelite family, because a family unit is about to die out. Once Naomi has died, there will no longer be any descendants of Elimelech to continue the family name. And so Naomi is stuck in a foreign country, with no one to look after her, and now with two daughters-in-law who need looking after. Naomi's world has completely fallen apart. But all is not lost. At this point, Naomi hears that there is food again in Israel. Bethlehem is living up to its name. And so she sets out with her two daughters-in-law to go back home. But as they go along, Naomi suddenly realizes what she is doing. She's been through this in her own life. She's about to take these girls to what for them will be a foreign country. It will be hard for them. And so she stops and says, You can't come with me. You'd better go back home. There's no future for you in Bethlehem. And Orpah and Ruth both cry and they say, No, we'll go back with you. And Naomi says, don't be silly. Do you think at my age I'm going to have any more children? Even if we went back to Bethlehem and I got a husband tonight and fell pregnant, are you going to sit around waiting until I have two sons who are of marriageable age? Go home. You've got a better chance there. And so Orpah decides that that is the sensible thing to do, and so she kisses Naomi goodbye and off she goes. I don't think we need to condemn Orpah. She did what Naomi asked her to do. Orpah does the sensible thing. She does the ordinary, the expected. But Ruth, on the other hand, does the extraordinary, the unexpected. Ruth does something that isn't sensible. She shows steadfast love towards her mother-in-law. 
Naomi says to her in verse 15, Look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. And we all know Ruth's famous reply in verses 16 and 17. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. That was an amazing commitment. It wasn't just a short-term commitment for a few years in a foreign land. This was going to be a long-term commitment of Ruth's entire life. This was also real trust in God. In verse 13, Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, The Lord's hand has gone out against me. Ruth has seen the kinds of things that this God does, and yet she says, Your God will be my God. Ruth makes a commitment to Naomi and becomes a follower of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Ruth is the supreme example of steadfast love. And I think that we can all learn something from her example. One of the questions we should ask ourselves from this passage is this. Do I have this type of love for others? Do we have this commitment to one another as a church? Do we have this kind of extravagant love for the world? Particularly in this time when we're so tempted just to look out for number one. Well, Naomi and Ruth travel together to Bethlehem, and when they arrive in Bethlehem, the whole town is abuzz because here is Naomi back again after ten years of being away. And the people see her and say, hey, look everybody, Naomi's home. And Naomi says, verse 20, don't call me Naomi, which remember means lovely. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. That sounds like quite a harsh statement, doesn't it? God has been against me. God has afflicted me. But it's how Naomi feels at the moment. And the Bible allows us to bring our feelings to God, as we saw last week in Psalm 22. We're allowed to share our hearts honestly and openly with God without pretending. But also, I think there is a note of faith in there as well, although it's hidden pretty deeply. Naomi doesn't say that life has been hard on her or that she's had bad luck. She acknowledges that God has been at work, even if she doesn't understand how he has been at work. And if it is God who has brought these circumstances on Naomi, it is he who might be able to turn the circumstances around as well. And in fact, at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, we're given three pieces of information that suggest that maybe God will turn things around again. Firstly, Ruth is with Naomi, and so it's a little unfair of Naomi to say that she's come back empty. She has Ruth. Secondly, we are told that it is the barley harvest, which suggests that they will at least be able to get some food. And thirdly, we are told that Naomi has a relative by the name of Boaz, and in theory he should be able to take care of them. 
although I think that the way in which he did care for them went way beyond anything that Naomi could have imagined. And so Ruth and Naomi find a place to stay, possibly with distant relatives, and they rest up a while after their long journey. But they can't sit around doing nothing forever, and so Ruth says to her mother-in-law that she will go out gleaning. Now, the Israelites had a law that said that when people were harvesting, they shouldn't harvest every single last sheaf of grain, but rather they were to leave the edges of their fields for the poor and the widows and the aliens. It was a great law that prevented something that we often see in our own world, that the rich keep on getting richer and the poor keep on getting poorer. And Ruth and Naomi fit into all three of those categories. They are poor and widows and aliens. And so Ruth decides to go and see if she can get some food for her and her mother-in-law. Gleaning wasn't particularly lucrative work. It was really like trying to make a living recycling tin cans. You wouldn't get rich by doing it. Also, it wasn't always safe because farm workers didn't have the best reputation. But Ruth had to do something, and so off she goes. And we read that she just happens to begin working in the field of Boaz. Out of all the fields, in all the towns, in all the world, she happens to walk into Boaz as one. The writer puts it so wonderfully in chapter 2 and verse 3. He says, As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And the writer is playing with us because he knows, as we know, that this wasn't just as it turned out, but that this was the hand of God at work. And as Ruth is busy gleaning in the fields, who should come and see how the work is getting on but the owner of the field, Boaz himself? Again, one of those divine coincidences. Ruth just happens to be in Boaz's field, and Boaz just happens to come along when she was there. If he'd come half an hour earlier or half an hour later, he would have missed her, and she might have gone on to another field. Michael Bordeaux was a Christian student at Oxford University in the 1960s. He was studying Russian and had a deep heart for the persecuted church as it was then in Russia. One day his professor gave him a letter that he'd received in Paris from a French schoolteacher that he thought Michael Bordeaux might find interesting. The letter came from the Ukraine, and it was just a short note from two people called Varava and Pranina describing the situation in the church in Russia. A little later, in April 1964, Michael Bordeaux went on a trip to Russia with a number of teachers from Oxford, and they arrived in Moscow, and Michael Bordeaux decided to go and visit a church that he remembered had been in Moscow, and so he went to where the church used to be, and the church wasn't there. There was just this 12-foot fence surrounding a heap of rubble that used to be the church. The Russian authorities had blown up the building. And then Michael saw two women who had climbed over the fence and were investigating the rubble. And so Michael walked around and went to try and see them, but they quickly climbed back over the fence and ran away. He managed to catch up with them, and they asked him who he was. And he said that he had come from England. Their English wasn't very good, and so they took him to the house of another lady, and she asked him what he was doing in Russia, and he said... Well, I was given a letter in London via Paris, and I've come to find out how the church is doing in Russia. 
this lady said, who is the letter from? And Michael said, it's from Varava and Pranina. And at that, all three of the women burst into floods of tears, and Michael thought he'd said something wrong. And then this lady turned to him, and she pointed at the two women, and she said, that's Varava, and that's Pranina. The population of Russia is over 140 million. The Ukraine is 1,300 miles from Moscow. Michael had come from London six months after the letter had been sent, and the three of them would never have met if either of them had got to the church half an hour later or half an hour earlier. And from that encounter, Michael Bordeaux felt God's call to his life's work of helping the persecuted church in Russia. Now, not all coincidences in life are as dramatic as that, but we should take careful note of some of the coincidences in our lives, because as we see in this passage, they are often not just simply coincidences, but rather the fingerprints of God at work. The fact that Ruth just happens to be in Boaz's field, the fact that Boaz just happens to come along, is in fact an answer to prayer. Right the way back in chapter 1, Naomi prayed for Orpah and Ruth and said, May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And now we see that prayer beginning to come true. And look at how that prayer is answered. The prayer isn't answered as some of the other prayers in the Old Testament are answered, with great big earthquakes or the sun standing still or the walls falling down. This prayer is answered through simple coincidences. Here we can see that God is working in the situation, even in the little things, even though Ruth and Naomi can't see him at work. Well, Boaz goes up to his workers to find out how the harvest is going, and they tell him that everything is fine. And normally Boaz would have just checked everything and then been on his way, but something catches his eye, or rather somebody catches his eye. Boaz notices that there is a beautiful young lady in his fields who wasn't there previously, and he wants to know from his field manager, who is that? It's like in church or at the office when a new young lady comes along. All the unattached men are wanting to know who she is. And Boaz is in luck because his farm manager tells him that this young lady is also unattached. She is Ruth the Moabitess, who has come back from Moab with her mother-in-law Naomi and she has asked the farm manager if she can work in the field. And so Boaz calls her over, and he's kind to her. I'll look after you, young lady. You can glean anywhere in my field. My workers won't hurt you. Help yourself to some water at any time. You stay in this field. You'll be safe here. Boaz shows himself to be a good man who cares for the stranger, the alien, and the poor the very people who God is particularly concerned about in the Old Testament. But also I wonder if Boaz doesn't have some other motives here as well. I think he wanted to see Ruth again. He couldn't ask her for her telephone number, but he could ask her to stay in his field. And Ruth is amazed at how generous Boaz is being, and she says to him, verse 10 of chapter 2, Why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And Boaz replies in verse 11, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. 
And then Boaz says something very important. He says in verse 12, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That was a very important prayer, and Ruth is going to remember his words. At lunchtime, Boaz calls Ruth over and he invites her for a lunch of bread, sauce and popcorn. Uh, verse 14, that's what roasted grain is, isn't it? Popcorn. So not only is popcorn nice to eat, but it's also biblical. Boaz also has had a quiet word with his workers and he says to them, don't embarrass her, even if she gleans among the sheaves, pull out some of the grain from the bundles, drop it where she can pick it up. And so Ruth has a very successful day. She goes home to Naomi with about 20 kilograms of grain. That's a lot of grain. It's the standard luggage allowance on an aeroplane. You wouldn't have expected Ruth to get so much grain simply from gleaning. And so Naomi asks, whose field did you work in today? And Ruth tells her it was Boaz's field. And Naomi tells Ruth that actually Boaz is a close relative of theirs. And in fact, it looks like Naomi is doing a bit of matchmaking herself because she says to Ruth in verse 22, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because in someone else's field you might be harmed. And we read that all during the harvest, Ruth gleans in Boaz's fields. Well, that brings us to chapter three of the book, where the real action takes place. Ruth has been busy gleaning in Boaz's fields for several weeks now, and he obviously likes her a lot, but he hasn't taken any action yet. We're not quite sure why not. Maybe he was just a slow male. Maybe he had issues with commitment. But remember also that he is an older man and Ruth is a foreigner. They're separated by both age and background. But fortunately, mother-in-law Naomi has a plan. We read in verse 1 of chapter 3, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? In other words, here we have Naomi trying to answer her own prayer back in chapter 1. May God give you a husband. And I think that that's significant. Sometimes we bring our requests before God and then we sit back and do nothing. But here Naomi has prayed and asked God for his help and then has taken steps to do something about what she has asked. She has prayed and asked God to act and now she starts pushing some doors to see what will happen. And if we pray and ask God's help, if we earnestly want to please him and do things in accordance with his will, then we're allowed to push a few doors and see which ones open and which ones close. Naomi says to Ruth, Boaz is busy threshing the barley and he'll be down at the threshing floor tonight. So put on your best clothes, put on some perfume, wait until he's finished eating and drinking and then go and lie down at his feet and then he will tell you what to do. And so that's exactly what Ruth does. She makes herself as attractive as possible, as only a woman can. She puts on her best clothes and goes down to the threshing floor and she waits until Boaz has gone to sleep for the night and then she creeps up to him and uncovers his feet and lies there. In the middle of the night, Boaz wakes up, probably because his feet are cold, and he finds that there is a strange woman at the bottom of his bed, which must have been a bit of a shock to the system. And so he says, who are you? And she replies, I am your servant Ruth. 
And at this point, Ruth does something that her mother-in-law didn't tell her to do. She actually proposes to Boaz. She says to him in verse 9 of chapter 3, Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. It was a marriage proposal. And it's quite interesting. When Boaz had first met Ruth, he said to her, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And now Ruth asks Boaz to be the answer to his own prayer. She says, I need you to cover me. I need you to put your wings over me, your cloak over me. It's the same word in Hebrew. Yes, I've turned to Yahweh and asked him to be my refuge, but God uses human beings. You can't just say, I wish you well, be warm and clothed and fed and do nothing about it. You're the nearest family that Naomi and I have. Please won't you cover me? Won't you marry me? And Boaz says, yes. This would be an appropriate time to cheer. He says, I want to. I wasn't sure if I should. Beside the social barriers, I didn't think that you would want to marry an old man. But I do want to. But, like all good romance stories, there is a twist in the plot. It's always like this in the movies. Just when you think that Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant are finally going to get together, something pushes them apart. And it's the same here. Boaz says to Ruth, Well, actually, there is another relative who is closer to Naomi's family, and he has first choice as to whether or not he would like to marry you. You see, in those days, if a woman's husband died without leaving children, then a male relative of the dead man would marry his widow in order to keep the family name going. And so you had to be really careful about who you let your brother marry. Elimelech had another male relative who was closer on the family tree, and he's allowed first choice. But Boaz says, don't worry, I'll try to do something about it in the morning. And he sends Ruth back home with another 20 kilograms of grain on her back. And Ruth tries to tiptoe back into the house, but Naomi is wide awake and she wants to know, how did it go? What happened? And Ruth tells her everything and Naomi says, don't worry, Boaz will sort it all out. And so in chapter 4, we get to the scene at the city gate. And this is quite a dramatic scene. Ruth and Naomi probably watch from a distance, and Ruth knows that at the end of the day she's going to be engaged to someone. Either she's going to be engaged to Boaz, or she's going to be engaged to this unknown relative. Boaz goes to the city gates, which is where all the business transactions take place, and he tells the elders of the city that Naomi's field is up for sale. And the closest relative to Naomi says, I'll buy it. And so Boaz says, well, that's fine, but when you buy the field, you'll also get Naomi's daughter-in-law as your wife. And this relative says, well, in that case, I won't buy it. And he takes off his sandal to show that Boaz can buy the field. I think it's very interesting to note that at no point does Boaz allow this other relative to actually see Ruth. Otherwise, maybe the story would have turned out very differently. Boaz is very crafty. And so Boaz stands up in front of the people and he says, Today I have bought Naomi's field and I've also acquired Ruth as my wife. This would be another great place to cheer. Well, if you don't cheer, then the people in the city gates do cheer. Verse 11 of chapter 4. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. 
May you have standing in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. I went to a wedding once where the best man said to the bride and groom, May you have the wisdom of Solomon, the patience of Job, and the children of Israel, which is basically what the people say to Boaz at this point. And so Ruth and Boaz get married. But that's not the end of the story, because Boaz and Ruth have a son called Obed. And at last, Naomi's life has come full circle, because she now has the grandson that she thought she would never have. And then the book ends in a very unusual way, not the way that you would really expect a romance story to end, because the book ends with a long list of names. It's one of those dreaded genealogies that we normally skip over. But this morning we're not going to skip over it because it's very important. Chapter 4, verse 18. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Amenadab. Amenadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz. Boaz the father of Obed. Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David. Which David? Well, King David, of course. And that's the importance of the story. The story is not just about God being good to one little family, but about God doing something great for the nation of Israel. In a time when God's people were mainly rejecting him, God was working out a plan to give them a king who would bring the nation back to himself. The nation may have rejected God, but God had not rejected the nation. And not only is God engineering a plan to get a good king on the throne, but he is doing something far greater even than that. Because David's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson is Jesus. Here God is working out his master plan of bringing salvation to the whole world. What does all of this mean to us this morning? Well, as we've gone through the story, I hope you've noticed a couple of things that apply to our own lives. Maybe let's just recap. We've seen something of steadfast love, selfless love, something that all of us need to put into practice in this time. And we've seen how that kind of love is rewarded. We've seen something of God's concern for the poor and needy. And living in a country like South Africa, we need to share his concern for the poor and the needy, the, wid the widow and the alien. And we can be encouraged that if we find ourselves in the position of being poor and needy, then we are especially on God's heart. We've seen how sometimes we get to be the answer to our own prayers by taking action and trusting God. God works through human acts. Naomi prays that Ruth will find a family. Boaz prays that Ruth will be blessed. But God works through human plans. Naomi's clever plan is used by God. Ruth's proposing to Boaz is used by God. Boaz's clever maneuvering at the city gate all are used by God. God uses human beings. But probably most importantly for us today, we have seen how God is always in control, even when everything seems to be falling apart. In the book of Ephesians, Paul calls God the one who works out everything 
in conformity with the purpose of his will. As we've seen, he's in control of the little things and the big things and even the bad things. He's in control of personal family disasters and he's in control of national and international crises. God is always at work, even if we can't see or understand what he is doing. He can take a family crisis like the death of a husband and the death of two sons and radically transform and use that situation for good. He can take a national crisis like the dark days of the judges and a national famine and transform it and use it for good. At the end of her life, Naomi could see God's goodness to her in giving her a grandson, but she had no idea of the bigger picture of her part in God's plan to save the nation and save the world. Think of another character in the Old Testament, Joseph. After years of being a slave, being falsely accused, being unjustly imprisoned, right at the end of the story, Joseph can say to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God's plan overruled and used Joseph's troubles and sorrows for his own good purpose. Or think of Jesus, the righteous sufferer in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, we read how after Jesus' ascension, the disciples pray and say, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God's purposes are accomplished even through the worst that men and women can do. And Naomi and Ruth and Joseph and Jesus illustrate something that the Bible tells us in Romans 8 verse 28, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. This is not wasted time while we wait for the pandemic to be over. God is doing something in the world, and he is doing something in you, and he is doing something in me. Some of that we might get to see, part of it we probably will never see or understand. But Elimelech's name is seen to be true in the end. My God, our God, is King. Amen.